0: Today's reading is from Genesis 2, chapter 25, and the whole of Genesis 3. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly since from then you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return adam named his wife eve because she would become the mother of all the living the lord god made garments of skin for adam and his wife and clothed them and the lord god said the man is now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: Well, keep uh, that passage out in front of you, so... You can make sure I'm not making anything up and uh, let's pray and ask God for his help as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it this morning and that you would grow in our hearts faith, love for you, thankfulness for what you've done and longing for your kingdom to come. Amen. Well, last week uh, we saw that the Bible tells one big story. All the little stories and little parts are part of the one big story. And it's this story of all history, uh, the story from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, it's the story of God's plan for all history, his plan to build his kingdom. And last week, back at the beginning, we we saw the first man and the first woman in God's perfect garden. And we saw that this was it was kind of like one of those models that the architects build that show you what the development is going to look like. We see that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was the pattern, the model, the kind of preview of all the elements that make up God's kingdom. And it was glorious. God's people, male and female, made in God's image to reflect his goodness like little mirrors. Living in God's place, the perfect oasis where everything was in perfect harmony. They submitted willingly to God's rule. He invited them to rule the world and enjoy all the good that he had made. And he commanded them to stay away from the one thing that would harm them. And they enjoyed God's blessing. They had perfect relationships with creation, with the world, with the animals, with the earth, with the plants. Had perfect relationship with each other. A perfect union and perfect relationship with God. And we saw the high point of creation, the moment that all of creation had built up to, was actually a wedding officiated by God himself. Have a look there at uh, chapter 2, verse 25. At the end of this wedding, we read this statement. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It seems kind of a weird uh, thing to say, doesn't it? But it's actually quite significant because it's symbolic of the perfection of their relationship. It's symbolic of the fact that that they had no shame they had no embarrassment they had no fear they had no mistrust no anxiety because they were completely safe completely comfortable and accepted and secure that marriage at that moment was exactly what no marriage has ever been since but the wedding that was made in heaven very quickly turns into the honeymoon from hell when God's people are seduced into adultery by a snake. Seduced by the snake, God's people reject God's rule. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. It doesn't translate into English, but there's actually a, a word play going on here. Uh, the Hebrew word for crafty is the word aram, which sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for naked, aram. So, it goes a little bit like this, if you follow uh, from verse 25. Adam and his wife were both aram and they felt no shame. Now, the serpent was more aram than any of the wild animals. I reckon the closest uh, English equivalent I could kind of come up with was kind of two to rhyming words, nude and shrewd and so you've kind of got this this dynamic here adam and eve were nude and it was good but the snake was shrewd and that's bad well later scripture confirms our suspicions that this is no ordinary snake but satan himself the devil the evil one the deceiver about a dozen other names and titles for him in the bible but while he's got a whole lot of names, we actually don't know a whole lot about him. We don't actually know how this heavenly being ended up as God's enemy. We actually don't know how he can appear as a snake in God's place. But what we do know is he is just a creature created by God. And though he's God's rival, He's absolutely no equal or match to God. And we know that actually Satan can do nothing without God's permission, which means that God's actually given him permission to be here at this point in time, doing his best to seduce and deceive and tempt God's people to reject God's rule. This is where we have to remember what we learnt last week, that God's kingdom is not a place where he forces his people, to accept his rule, God's kingdom is a place where his people willingly submit to his rule. The snake is very crafty, and Adam and Eve choose to listen to the snake. Well, uh, the uh, ACCC, uh, Australia's consumer watchdog, reported that uh, last year, Australians lost $3.1 billion to scammers. Uh, Of the 240,000 victims who reported to Scamwatch, they lost about $20,000 each. And sometimes we can kind of wonder how. You know, how does someone just sort of end up getting caught in that situation, giving their money? But the reality is these people are very crafty, aren't they? And some of us have been caught out. It's, It's so easy to get caught out. And they actually, they follow a bit of a formula. And as we look at Adam and Eve, it might be easy for us to look back at Adam and Eve and go, well, how did they listen to a snake? You know, God put them there. Everything was perfect. He said, don't eat from that. They've got everything you could possibly want. Eat from every other tree. How did they get caught out? But he had a bit of a formula too. And I think it's helpful to recognise what it is that Satan does and kind of the steps and the stages that take place in this first deception, in this first sin. Because actually we share the same DNA as Adam and Eve. We share the same vulnerability as them. And the serpent is still doing that, following that same formula to deceive us. So if you're following in your points there, the snake begins by distorting God's rule. I wonder if you've heard people say things like this to you before. Uh, Christianity is just a bunch of rules. Don't you have to give up your personality to follow Jesus? Why does God hate sex? See, these statements, they're horrible distortions that don't match the truth of God's rule at all they act a little bit like a bait on a hook that draws us in and disarms us. And it's exactly what Satan does here. Have a look at verse 1. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's totally loaded, isn't it? And it actually makes a mockery of God's rule. It kind of paints God in this grotesque caricature as a completely unfair and unreasonable ruler. And notice how it pulls Eve right in. In her defensiveness to defend against this distortion of God's rule and God's word, she herself actually distorts God's word as well. Have a look at her response. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, actually, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, did you notice what Eve did there? Did you notice what Eve had changed from God's original command back in chapter 2? Have a listen. In chapter 2, verse 16, this was the original command. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden... But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So it doesn't seem like much, but when Eve adds, if we touch it, we will die, just that tiny little addition has actually distorted and changed God's word. It shows that she's actually taken God's word for granted. She hasn't worried too much about being precise in her doctrine here and and it's not like she had much to remember, right? They had one rule, one rule to remember, one rule. But in distorting it, in making it just a little bit more unbelievable, it becomes less than God's perfect word, less convincing. It actually undermines it. And Christians do that today. Whenever we add to God's rules, uh, add to God's word, when we add rules and requirements that God himself hasn't given, we actually make Christianity unreasonable and unhelpful and unbelievable. The snake begins by distorting God's word, and then the snake deceives even Adam. Verse 4: a flat-out lie. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's word's not right. God's lied to you. He's holding out from you. He's withholding good from you. He's an overbearing, egotistical, vindictive God. He's trying to push you down and box you in and hold you back. He's an oppressive God. He hasn't told you the truth. Actually, that tree that he says is bad is actually the best thing going in the garden, and you're missing out. If you eat from that tree, you will become like God. Now, what does he mean by this become like God? knowing good and evil it's not just about sort of knowing okay that's a right thing and that's a wrong thing it's not just about that it's it's actually about deciding for yourself what is good and what isn't it's about playing god putting ourselves in god's position as our own little gods who call our own shots who decide for ourselves what we will think is good and evil It's about choosing to ignore God's rule and to rule our own way. Don't worry about it, says the snake. And those same lies still apply today, don't they? Constantly from our own sinful hearts and and from the world around us, we're told that actually God doesn't want what's best for us. God is holding back good. God is lying to us. That sin doesn't really matter. White lies don't count. God just wants us to be happy. So if that makes you happy, go for it. God doesn't care about the little sins. You will not certainly die. See, he's not called the deceiver or the father of lies for nothing. The snake deceives Adam and Eve. But then three, after being deceived, Adam and Eve begin to doubt. You can almost imagine what they're thinking, can't you? Maybe God's word isn't what's best for me. Maybe he hasn't told the truth. Maybe he is holding me back from living my best life. And and in her doubt, we're told that Eve looks again at the tree that she must have looked at so many times. And her doubt mixes with desire. Verse 6. The woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. What is it that makes sin so desirable? See, so it's never just the thing itself. You know, I mean, often, if it wasn't sort of pleasurable, we, we probably wouldn't sin, right? If we didn't get a bit of a kick out of, you know, picking on someone or, or doing something we're not supposed to do, we, we probably wouldn't do it. But, but actually, we learn here that there's something bigger than that. The thing itself is part of it, but actually behind it all and bigger than it all is the control. The autonomy, the self-assertion. See, not only did Eve want to try the fruit because she looked at it and thought, actually, that does look pretty darn good. It does look pretty tasty and juicy. But actually she also wanted to be clever enough to call her own shots. She also wanted to assert her ability to throw off God's command, throw off God's rule and to put herself in control. And actually this is at the heart of every sin. The desire not just for the things themselves that we covet, but a desire to be in the driver's seat. To say, God, you can't tell me I can't have that. You can't tell me I can't do that. No, I'm going to decide. See, they desired to take the place of God and it led to disaster. Point five. Six B. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now as a parent, uh, it's so easy uh, to overlook and underestimate some of those seemingly small and insignificant you know, sins around the home. It's easy to kind of think, well, yeah, I know she had a bad attitude, but at least she cleaned her room. You know He's not sharing again, but you know it is his favorite toy and... I know she's only telling me part of the story, but it you know she didn't flat out lie to me, you know. See, it's easy, isn't it, to kind of let some of those things go. We'll pounce on a punch in the face, but we'll pass over a poked out tongue. But actually, the nature of sin is that underneath it all, it's it's all the very same sinful attitude under the surface. A desire to say no to God's way and to rule our lives ourselves, And I think it's actually really striking that the most disastrous sin of all, the sin that has done the most damage, that's brought an absolute chain reaction of destruction and devastation and depravity, actually it's a pretty unspectacular sin, right? And we read this sentence, she took some and ate some, gave it to him, he ate some. It just seems so kind of inane, doesn't it? So innocuous, so almost insignificant. And yet, it highlights the fact here, sin isn't just about the act. It's not about the fruit. It's about rejecting God's rule. It's about the attitude of our heart, where we say, no, God, I don't want you to be God. I will be God. I will decide for myself. And it has very real consequences. See, the naked truth of sin is that it puts a grenade in God's kingdom. See, the first effect of rejecting God's rule is kind of a natural consequence. It's disgust. Have a look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. Isn't it interesting how the very first effect of sin was for the first man and the first woman to feel uncomfortable about their bodies? The first thing that they notice is broken is themselves. Is their experience of being an embodied creature, their experience of sexuality? Something had broken inside them when they rejected God's rule. See, God had made, we saw last week, he'd made his people in his image like mirrors to reflect his goodness to the world. And instantly they can see that those mirrors have been shattered. They can see that the reflection of God's goodness doesn't look like it used to look. It's broken and distorted. See, they tried to be shrewd, And they found themselves to be nude, dirty and embarrassed, exposed and uncomfortable and unsafe. And so they hide from the God who made them. So the fact that they were made as male and female had just moments earlier been something to celebrate. And now it was something they felt they needed to hide, to be ashamed of. And every human ever since has carried that same brokenness. We still, because of Adam and Eve's sin, carry that same brokenness. We share that same discomfort with our own selves, our own beings, our own bodies. Our relationship with our own bodies and our sexuality has been broken from that point on. It's been marked by the knowledge that Something's not the way it should be. And like Adam and Eve, we try all sorts of futile ways to cover that up. But our attempts are never successful. See, we try to, we try to hide our bodies and cover up that shame by covering up, the, covering up any hint of our sexuality. And, and we see that in, in Islam. We try to then go the opposite direction and just pretend the problem's not there and flaunt our bodies and and our sexuality uh, and just pretend that the shame doesn't exist, that the brokenness doesn't exist. Pretend that everything is fine. That's what we've done in the West with our sexual revolution. And now we even try to actually not just cover it up or bring it out, We, we actually try to change it. We try to change our bodies in an attempt to get rid of that discomfort with our plastic surgeries and our Botox and our hormone therapies. And see, all of these experiments are just as useful as sewing together leaves to deal with a problem that goes right to the inside. They don't deal with the problem of our sin. They don't deal with the problem of our brokenness and our experience of being humans in broken bodies. See, from the moment they swallowed the fruit, they knew they'd made a terrible mistake. But they'd only just begun to realise how terrible because everything was destroyed. Destruction. Everything that was good was broken. Everything that God had blessed was now cursed. The pattern of God's kingdom had perished. Where God's people had had perfect relationship with each other, there was now shame, rivalry and hardship. Even amongst the closest of human relationships, a man and his wife, there was now envy and rivalry. And where we'd had perfect relationship with God, there was now fear and guilt and judgment and brokenness. And so we hide from God, knowing that we cannot stand in his presence because we are unholy and he is a holy God. And where we would had a perfect relationship to the creation that God had made, where we could cuddle up to a T-Rex and... and You know, there were no weeds and no thorns and everything just grew and the water came up from the ground. Now creation would fight against people every single step of the way. And filling the earth and subduing it, having babies would be hard, subduing it would be hard, eating would be hard, and then comes death. It's interesting here, isn't it, the language... You will return to the ground. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Notice how it's the reverse of what just happened a chapter earlier, where God had taken the dust and breathed life into it and turned dust into a living being. Now, because of sin, that living being would then turn back into dust as the breath leaves uncreated, unmade. And death is an incredible tragedy. It's it's the opposite to God's pattern for his kingdom. It's the opposite to the blessing of living under God's rule. And It's incredibly alien, isn't it? It doesn't matter how we try and rationalise or think about or deal with death when it comes, there's nothing more horrendous or simply wrong than death. But it's actually the right and appropriate consequence of rejecting God's righteous rule. But it's not the only or even final consequence. The final consequence is divorce. Have a look at verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden a cherubim. Don't think like little cute babies on the Sistine Chapel. Think the terrifying creatures in Daniel and Revelation uh, that are just too horrifying to look at. And a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. See, like a massive keep-out sign. God says, you actually, because of your sin, can't come back in and live in my place. You can't come back in and have that unbroken relationship with me. You can't have the blessing that I give. You cannot live any longer. So the serpent had said that they would be like God. And the irony here is actually God himself said they'd become like God. But it definitely wasn't the way that Adam and Eve were expecting or hoping, whatever that might have been. Cut off from God, cut off from his place, cut off from his blessing and now no longer his people. The kingdom had truly perished. But as we saw last week, this is not a problem that has caught God by surprise. It's not something that's meant God has to change or adjust his plans. It was actually part of his plan from the beginning because he had something better than the garden he always planned for something better than that puny little model he planned for the reality of his kingdom and did you notice the promise that was hidden in the curses the snake crushing kingdom bringer have a look at verse 14 the lord said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. See, right back at the beginning, on the darkest day, a glimmer of hope, a promise. God will deal with the deceiver. God will deal with sin and he'll do it in an unusual way through a descendant of Adam and Eve. The one who would come to be known as the Christ who will come to see came in the man Jesus. God says he will be wounded by the snake but he'll prevail and will destroy the snake for good. And there's one more clue that God gives us how that's going to happen. Have a look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. See, God here hands out judgment and then shows incredible mercy. He deals with the nakedness and the shame. How? Through death. God actually made the very first sacrifice when he took those animals and he killed them instead of the man and the woman so that he could deal with their nakedness and their shame. And it's a sign that the solution for sin would come through sacrifice. A clue that one day the serpent crusher would himself be sacrificed by God in order to finally, fully and completely deal with our sin and our shame. He would be sacrificed in order to finally, completely and fully crush the snake and to bring in God's kingdom. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the disastrous events of that day, which are played out over and over and over again every day, when every single one of us, like Adam and Eve, reject your rule, try and set ourselves up as gods of our own life. But we thank you, for your incredible grace and mercy. We thank you for the hope that you gave from the very beginning to send the serpent crusher to deal with sin, to come and be a sacrifice that will deal with and cover and take away our shame and our guilt completely. Amen.